Hello everyone and welcome back to The Bridgehead. Today we're going to be talking to an author that a lot of you will probably recognize. Her name is Nancy Percy and she has been called by The Economist magazine no less uh, America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. That's quite the lengthy title. Uh, the first time I was introduced to her book was uh, her book Total Truth, Liberating Christianity from Its Cultural Captivity, which is a, a fascinating book that I would recommend uh, to any of you. And she's, she's won a lot of medals and prizes for the various books that she has written, including the ECPA Gold Medallion Award, as well as the 2000 ECPA uh, Gold Medallion Award in, in addition to other awards. She was actually originally an agnostic. Uh, she was studying in Heidelberg, Germany in the early 1970s, and then uh, she headed to Switzerland, where she studied at the Labrie Fellowship under the famous Francis Schaeffer. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, for those of you who don't know, uh, was a, a, a Protestant titan. Uh, my knowledge of him started when I discovered that he was single-handedly responsible on an intellectual level for bringing a lot of Protestants into the pro-life movement in the early 80s. He's also written a lot of, of brilliant books, and, and he did a lot of work sort of exploring the connections between Christianity and art. Uh, and, well, he wrote so many books that he more or less covered all of the topics, but uh, back to Nancy Percy, that just sort of gives you a bit of a hint of where her training comes from. She's been published in the Washington Post, the Washington Times, uh, First Things, American Thinker, Human Events, Christianity Today, Books and Culture, World Magazine, Human Life Review, The Daily Caller. I could go on and on. She's addressed staffers at Capitol Hill and at the White House. And uh, she's a visiting scholar at Biola University's Tory Honors Institute. And she's a professor of worldview studies at Cairn University and a Francis A. Schaefer scholar at the World Journalism Institute. Uh, currently, she's a professor of apologetics and a scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University. So it's pretty obvious why I'd want to have a discussion with somebody like her, but I wanted to talk to her even more because she recently came out with a book that was highly recommended by no less than uh, Dr. Robert P. George of Princeton, who's also written some amazing books. We've had him on the show before. And the book is called Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. And while she covers a lot of different issues, she covers abortion, she covers gay marriage, she covers sexuality in general, the hookup culture, one of the things I was primarily interested in, in talking about uh, with her is the fact that she addresses and addresses very extensively the issue of transgenderism. This issue uh, has sort of dominated the headlines for the last couple of years and for many people has just come out of absolute nowhere. Uh, we went from gay marriage to inserting transgender ideology into schools and universities at such a lightning speed that the vast majority of parents genuinely don't even know that their kids are being taught this. This is very prevalent here in Canada. Uh, these sorts of things are, are ending up in the uh, curriculum uh, as young as age uh, kindergarten in British Columbia. And I know that the same curriculum that surfaced in British Columbia is headed over to Alberta. So these are issues that we have to understand, even though it's come upon us so fast that a lot of people are confused about transgenderism. What is it? Why? Uh, where has this phenomenon come from? 
from and and why is it being so suddenly forced down our, our collective cultural throats and because uh, Nancy Percy has researched this topic so extensively and because uh, a, a fairly large portion of Love Thy Body uh, brilliantly addresses these issues I wanted to have her on to talk about that and of course many other things so uh, without uh, further introduction I present a conversation between myself and author Nancy Percy. Why did you write this book? Oh, I wrote the book because um, certainly the, the the headline issues that we're all dealing with these days um, have to do with moral issues, things like abortion, assisted suicide, homosexuality, transgenderism, the hookup culture, and more. All of these issues are the things that people have to deal with these days. And so I, what I noticed is that typically we deal with them one by one, you know, each one separately. Right. And what I discovered is that there is a common underlying worldview to all of them, and we will be much more effective if we realize they share a common core set of convictions, um, and we, we might call that secular liberalism. And if we recognize that uh, worldview, we're going to be much more effective. And in particular, I show in my book that secular liberalism undermines human dignity and destroys human rights. And so it's a very harmful and destructive worldview that we need to get a handle on. Now, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, two years ago, uh, my first book was published called The Culture War, in which I tried to weave through all these issues and explain how they're linked. Uh, you know, how pornography actually you know, drives the demand for sex trafficking, which we can find explicitly in statistics, and human trafficking, how pornography desensitizes people to the humanity of women and therefore enables abortion, and so on and so forth. And I'd love to hear your take. How do you think we got here as a culture? I know a lot of let's say, middle-aged Christians, you know, kind of splutter at their newspaper once in a while when they see the next big story of, of a media organization backing, around, backing down from saying that men can't get pregnant or something ridiculous like that. So how did we get from there to here? Well, let's take the issue that's been around maybe the longest, which is abortion, because that helps, um, that helps explain where we got, how did we get here, what are the issue, underlying issues. Now, Many bioethicists will agree that the fetus is human from conception. Right. The, the evidence from DNA and genetics is just too strong to deny it. But they say it still should not be granted legal protection. Why not? Because it's not yet a person. As long as it is, as they will say it's human, yes, but as long as it's merely human, it's just a disposable piece of matter. It can be killed for any reason or no reason. It's can be, it can be used for research, tinkered with genetically, harvested for organs, uh, picked through for sellable body parts, like Planned Parenthood does, and then disposed with all the other medical waste. So, and this is actually called personhood theory. And what it means is that people have decided that being human does not have, does not convey any status or give you a right to legal protection. You don't, you don't earn legal protection until you become a person. And so what's driving this, it turns out, is actually a very low view of what it means to be human. Right. Being human is no longer enough for human rights. And so that's where, that's where we have to dig deeper, and we have to ask, where does this low view 
of being human come from? And historically, the turning point was Darwin's theory of evolution, because what it said was uh, that there's no real purpose in, in the biological world. Uh, up until then, people thought, of course, everything is designed for a purpose. Eyes are for seeing, ears are for hearing, wings are for flying, fins are for swimming. I mean, teleology was just all through nature. Teleology comes from the Greek word telos, which means purpose, a goal. Right. And in every organ of the body, the parts are all uh, integrated, interrelated, interacting towards uh, in a goal in a goal-directed way. But what Darwin said was, no, that's a mistake. We have to realize that the body is really a product of blind material forces. Uh, it's a it's a cosmic accident. And it has no higher purpose or meaning. So the human body was reduced to a collection of atoms, cells, and tissues, no different from any other chance configuration of matter. And so that explained why people today have such a low view of what it means to be human, that it, it gives you no moral standing and it gives you no right to legal protection. Now, interestingly enough, since Darwin's theory came out, we've already... We've already seen what happens when you cleave personhood from humanity. So, of course, most infamously, this was during the Holocaust, when Jews were recognized as human beings, but not legal persons. But we saw this also, uh, the reason women were denied many of, their, many of their rights is because they were not considered legal persons under the law. The same thing happened with indigenous peoples, who under the laws of, uh, of quite a number of nations were considered to be human beings, but were not considered legal persons. To some degree, this feels like we're making the exact same mistake with just another subset of humans, and that a knowledge of history should have already illustrated to us that when you start using the language of personhood, you are almost by definition using the language of exclusion. It's simply a tool by the strong to oppress a certain subset that's weaker for their own purposes. I totally agree with you. That's exactly it. And it is, it's a mystery to me as well why people are not making this connection. So take the issue of euthanasia or assisted suicide. This is just the argument from abortion in reverse. If bioethicists, bioethicists defend abortion by arguing that anyone who has not achieved a prescribed level of cognitive awareness is not a person, they justify euthanasia by saying if you lose certain cognitive abilities, you are no longer a person, even though you're obviously still human. But at that point, you can be unplugged, your treatment withheld, your food and water discontinued, your organs harvested. And the upshot is that, again, the sheer fact of being biologically human no longer guarantees the most basic human right, which is the right not to be killed. You have to earn the status of personhood by maintaining an arbitrary level of neocortical functioning. Right. So, again, this is a drastic devaluation of human life, and that's what we have to understand. It is a low view of human life that is driving all of these issues. But it also seems, from my perspective at least, to make the right to life a moving target. If it can sort of be granted or rescinded based on the latest research from, from Peter Singer, uh, let's say, then it seems like nobody can ever be truly sure whether or not they're safe because human rights are no longer rooted in anything that, that doesn't shift in one direction or another rather constantly. Exactly, and that's why the Declaration of Independence says that rights have to be endowed by the Creator. 
In other words, what they were saying is there has to be a transcendent source of rights, transcendent to the state, otherwise it's a moving target. Otherwise, rights are merely a matter of social convention or whoever has the most power gets to define our rights. Now, what, what was interesting in my new book, Love Thy Body, is that I show that the same body-person dualism is also behind the sexuality issues. For example, uh, take homosexuality. No one really denies that biologically, physiologically, chromosomally, anatomically, humans, uh, males and females are counterparts to one another. That right. is how the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. So when someone embraces a same-sex identity, implicitly they are contradicting that design. They are saying, why should the structure of my body inform my identity? Why should my biological sex have any say in my moral choices? Again, this is a profoundly disrespectful view of the body. And the implication is what counts is not whether I'm biologically male or female, but all that counts is my feelings, my mind, my desires. And so, again, it's this body-person split applied now to homosexuality. And, once again, it is ultimately traceable back to the notion of where did the body come from. If it's a product of blind material forces, then the implication is, why should we respect it? We can do whatever we want with it. This is how Camille Paglia, you, you know Camille Paglia. She's a, an outspoken yes. you know, lesbian, right? I knew you would. But listen to how she defends homosexuality. She says, I agree that nature has made us male and female, right? Nature has made us a, biolog- a uh, sexually reproducing species. But then she says, why not defy nature? And here's the key quote. She says, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. So in other words, what she's saying is, as long as my, if my body is a product of undirected, mindless material forces, then they can convey no moral message. They give no clue to our identity and they have no inherent purpose that we're obligated to respect. We may do with them as we see fit. So the key issue behind all of these moral topics is what is your view of nature? Because your view of nature is essentially what informs your ethic. So in a teleological view of nature, nature is not just undifferentiated raw material that we can use any way we want. Nature exhibits a, a design, a plan, an order, a purpose. And when we live in, dis- in harmony with that design, when we live in tune with our bodies, that's when we experience greater human flourishing. So morality is not merely arbitrary rules or social convention. It expresses the teleology of what it means to be fully human. So really what's at stake in the sexuality debate is a fundamental question. What kind of cosmos do we live in? Right. Is it a cosmos of atoms bumping around by random forces? Or is it a cosmos ordered by a purpose which provides rational grounds for our moral decisions? Well, and Paglia takes her views a step further and says that abortion is not only killing a human being, but could actually be classified as murder 
but that for the same reasons you detailed for her positions on sexuality, we should be allowed to, to kill that fetus. Right. Again, it's that low view of nature, ultimately, that being human is not enough for human rights. And it's so odd because, ironically, secular liberalism claims to be about defending human rights and civil rights. And the idea is that conservatives, especially uh, religious conservatives, are the people who want to deny rights to certain groups. And it's really the opposite. Uh, there's a recent um, best-selling book out called Sapiens, um, A Short History of, Man- of Humankind, I think is this subtitle. And he, the author, is, he's from Israel, and his name is uh, Harari, Yuval Harari. And he basically says the, the Declaration of Independence was wrong when it says human beings are created equal and endowed by the created with certain inalienable rights. What he says is, well, wait a minute, if evolution is true, then evolution, natural selection is a process for calling out the most, vari- the most viable variations among living things. So he says created equal should really be changed to evolved differently. Right. And of course, in a materialist worldview, there's no creator to endow humans with rights. As he says, there's only the blind evolutionary process, which is devoid of purpose. And he ends up arguing that humans are merely biological organisms driven by the instinct to seek pleasure and that the very concept of equal rights is nothing but a Christian myth. So as these ideas filter into the public mind, human rights will be increasingly seen as a myth. And then how are we going to protect them? Politics is downstream from culture. Uh And when science and philosophy are saying that human beings are just biological organisms and rights are a Christian myth, then we are going to lose our rights. And it's really um, the conservative Christian view that gives a basis for rights that secularism does not give. Now, this is all very interesting, because some of this, of course, should be obvious to even a casual observer, is that everybody knows that we are not equal in height, weight, strength, intellect, that we have a wide variety of differences, and different people are superior to other individual people in certain areas. We have different skill sets. And as a result, the idea that equality can exist doesn't work without a God. The reason we're all equal is because we are all created in the image of God, which makes the smartest person in the world and the dumbest person of the world of absolute equal value. And what I find interesting, again, from a historical perspective, because for me, one of the things that I find to be uh, curious is, is how much the history of this, which is readily available to everyone, has been ignored. So the path from Darwin to the concentration camps uh, was not only short, but very, very easy to follow from a chronological point of view, right? In one of his books that gets frequently ignored, Darwin actually discusses how uh, the Christian ethic, which essentially uh, cares for those who are dying, uh, stops plagues that would otherwise purge a lot of the weak members of society, which would have a net positive effect on humanity, uh, that essentially a Christian society was damaging the species. 
And then his cousin, as you know, Sir Francis Galton, followed up by writing a book in which he suggested the first concentration camps, although he didn't suggest that the people in those camps get killed, just sterilized. And while a lot of Darwin admirers tried to claim that, well, that was Galton, not Darwin, Darwin did read the book and say it's the most interesting thing I've ever read. So you see the ideas that, that took shape in the Third Reich, uh, because they essentially decided, well, let's skip uh, sterilization and go to extermination just to speed this whole process up. And we got to see what was taking place. There's a reason the eugenics office on Long Island shut down just after World War II. It's because everybody realized where this could go. And then we had a couple of decades uh, of more or less consensus that we needed to stay away from these things, which is why Germany didn't even legalize abortion until around 1990. And now we've, seen, we've collectively forgotten all of this all over again. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and uh, another interesting person um, who who noticed who who writes about this was the philosopher Richard Rorty, who died a few years ago. But before that, he was revered as the philosopher of democracy. And yet he wrote, "I do not know how to justify or defend social democracy in any sort of philosophical way." And he went on to explain. He said, "Look, I'm an atheist, an evolutionist, a Darwinist." And in the struggle for existence, the strong win out while the weak are left behind. So that cannot be the basis of universal human rights. Instead, he says, the concept of universal human rights came from religious claims that humans are made in the image of God. And so he literally says, I have to borrow that concept from Christianity. And here's how he puts it, and this is a quote. He said, this Jewish and Christian element in our tradition is gratefully invoked by freeloading atheists like myself. So he calls himself a freeloading atheist because he recognizes that the only way he can have universal rights is by borrowing from Christianity, that his own worldview doesn't support it. And so that's why in, uh, in Love Thy Body, I come back again and again to what is your view of nature? What is your view of human origins? Because that shapes all everything else we think about humans. All of these you know this, these headline issues. It's really easy to just react to current events. And what we need to do is step back and say, where are they coming from? You know, uh, what is the underlying un- understanding of human nature? You cannot have human rights if it's not supported by your view of human nature. Which brings me to to the one topic I really wanted to discuss with you, because very few people have really attempted to get into the transgenderism discussion, and a lot of Christians are just quite frankly confused about the entire thing. Uh, There are ideas being entrenched in law that nobody had heard of a decade ago, and one of the reasons people don't know how to respond to the, the sort of transgender phenomenon is because they know so little about it. So we have your book that's come out, which is very helpful. We've got uh, uh, Ryan Anderson's book, uh, When Harry Became Sally. Um, Al Mohler has taken a shot at at least defining the terms and, and pointing us in the right direction. Russell Moore has done some good work uh, on this as well. But could you just explain for our listeners where this phenomenon came from, what it looks like now, and then we'll talk about how to respond to it. Yeah, exactly. People are a bit uh, puzzled by it because it's happened so quickly. And they say, where is this coming from? Why is it happening so fast? And the reason is it's the logical extension of the same underlying secular liberalism, which treats the body 
as having very little value. In fact, it's easier to see here even than in the, in, in the homosexual movement because the transgender narrative insists that gender has nothing to do with biological sex. Right. A BBC documentary says at the heart of the debate is the idea that your, war, that your mind can be at war with your body. I actually just finished reading a book by a Princeton professor, and it's a book giving a philosophical defense of transgenderism. And yet, in the process, she admits that it, it involves, and these are her words, disconnect, disjunction, self-alienation, self-estrangement. And she goes on to say, the physical body tells us nothing. It has no meaning at all. So kids down to kindergarten today are being estranged from their own body. They're being taught that it tells them nothing about their identity. So this is a devastatingly disrespectful view of the body. Young people are absorbing the idea that your physical body is not part of your authentic self, that your authentic self is only the autonomous choosing self, to which I say, why accept such an extreme devaluation of the body? Why not instead try to recover a higher view of the body? I recently read an article that was actually written by a 14-year-old girl. She had lived as a trans boy for three years, from age 11 to 14, and then had detransitioned by reclaiming her identity as a girl. And in the article, she said the turning point came when she, she realized it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. And, right. and, I, and I thought, my goodness, you know, I wish that had come out before my book because my, the title of my book is Love Thy Body. Right. She, she had realized that the, the important way to counter transgenderism is to have a higher view of the body. And that's why in my, my book, I help people get beyond just a negative reaction. You know, don't do it, it's wrong, all the thou shalt nots. And instead, approach people with a positive message of, of a higher view of the body, of the opportunity for self-integration, for recovering the internal unity between mind and body, to recover the internal harmony. And, and that should be our message, is that a message that's really more attractive and more appealing than any secular ethic. So when we're looking at transgenderism, though, give us an idea of what sort of actual cultural impact is this having? So we hear a lot of stories about what's going on in schools here in Canada, as I'm sure you know. There's a huge drive to get uh, transgender curriculum implemented into schools as young as kindergarten. They're reading them books about, you know, crayons that came from the factory with the wrong label on it and things like that. It's being introduced at a younger and younger age. But to what extent, in your view, is this actually catching on as a phenomenon. Rod Dreher thinks that it, it really is and that there are a lot of kids transitioning. And I've seen some recent polling data to indicate that the number of kids who identify as trans is skyrocketing. But what's, what has your research shown you? Oh, absolutely. I agree, totally. Um, the number of gender clinics is skyrocketing and the number of people, especially girls, has skyrocketed. But I will also say what's even more um, troubling is the change in the laws. I mean, people sometimes say, you know, why do other, how do other people's choices affect you? Why right. not just let them live the way they want? And the answer is that when the laws are changed, that affects everyone. And here's, here's the background. You know, a free society is possible 
only if it recognizes some rights as pre-political. That means they're based on something prior to the state. The state does not create them. It merely recognizes them. And many pre-political rights are based on biology. So when we dismiss biology, we are losing those rights. So, for example, the right to life used to be a pre-political right. It's something you had just because you remember the human race. Right. But the only way the state could legalize abortion was to rule that some humans are not legal persons, which means the state has claimed authority to decide which humans have a right to live, based not on biology, but only on its own legal fiat. This is a huge power grab by the state. It's an enormous increase in state power. Marriage used to be a pre-political right. It was based on the fact that humans are a sexually reproducing species. But the only way the state could treat same-sex couples the same as opposite-sex couples was to redefine marriage as a purely emotional commitment, which is what the Supreme Court did in its Obergefell decision. But we have lots of different emotional connections, so the state has claimed the authority to define which relationships qualify as marriage, based not on biology, but only on its own say-so. Right. And now transgenderism. It used to be that gender followed metaphysically on your biological sex. But the only way the law can treat a trans woman, that is someone born male, the same as a biological woman is to say biology is irrelevant. And that's why public schools are enforcing policies telling teachers which pronouns they must use without regard to the student's biological sex. And I've been reading same-sex advocates, especially lawyers, and they say the next step will be parenthood. Until now, who counts as a child's parents was based on biological relationship. But in a same-sex couple, at least one parent is not biologically related to any child they have. So the only way the state can treat same-sex couples the same as opposite-sex parents is to redefine parenthood without regard to biology. So you will be your child's parents only by permission of the state. And what the state gives, the state can take away. So human rights are no longer unalienable. So these issues are all sold to the public as a way of expanding choice. Right. But in rea- reality, they're, whole, they're handing over power to the state. So a secular ethic is really setting us up for control by an, all, an all-powerful political state. But what, what's interesting, too, is there seems to be this tension when they say it's not hurting anybody else. So, one, they're, they're completely neutralizing the concept of love thy neighbor, right? If, if I think a double mastectomy for a 14-year-old who's not old enough to vote is going to harm her, I, I think it's a bit offensive that somebody would simply say, well, why should you care? It's not happening to you specifically. But there's also this tension on the left between their economic collectivism, uh, collectivism and their sort of and and collective responsibility. And on the, on the other hand, you have this uh, the transgenderism and all these things being sold under the guise of, of radical individualism. And these things don't seem to go together. No. Well, except that they do. <laughs> um, they do in this sense that if you're going to claim a right, you have to have a mechanism for. Um, asserting that right. Right. And if you're going to assert a right as an individual, you are asserting that against natural communities like marriage, family, parenthood. You are asserting it to a large extent against the natural communities 
or at least the um, private private um, social institutions. So not just family, but also church or workplace. You know, all the things that Rousseau. You know, when when Rousseau said everyone is born free, but everywhere they are in chains, what he meant was the private institutions of family, church, society, workplace, and so on. And so he invoked the state on the side of the individual and said the individual can appeal directly to the state and that way achieves freedom from all of these intermediate societies, family, church, neighborhood, um, civic or local civic organizations, uh, workplace, and so on. And so all the way back to Rousseau, we have that pattern of the individual connecting with the state over against the smaller local natural communities. Right. So that's, that's the history to that. It, it, it has a long history of individualism being supported by collectivism, by the state. Right. So one final question here, which is, where do we go from here? So you said uh, rescue mission and not culture war. And that seems to, you know, indicate to a large degree that we need to approach individuals as individuals. Um, and at the same time, we do have to push back against the legal leviathan that is, you know, heading our way. We need to push back against the indoctrination in the schools and things like that. So where in your mind, how exactly do, do people who oppose the sorts of things that you wrote about in Love Thy Body, how do we respond? Right. Well, I'm a big believer, and I think I said it at the beginning of the program, that politics is a downstream from culture. Yes. Uh, you cannot really pass laws that people have not already already been persuaded are good and, tr- and true. They, they just won't take root. And so I'm a big believer in, in persuasion first. And I think that um, a model is how well we've done with the pro-life issue. Right. Um, and that is, yes... We've continued to work on it politically, but we're not working on it exclusively politically. Um, people have come to realize you have to work on education as well. I actually interviewed a member of Congress once uh, when I, I'd written a book uh, with one of my earlier books, um, and he contacted me. And he said, he literally said, I was radicalized by the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973. And I realized I had two possible means to approach it. I could go into politics and try to influence culture top-down, or I could work through education and try to actually change people's thinking. You know, well, politics seemed like it would work faster, so I went right. into politics. And, and like I said, he was a member of Congress in Washington, D.C. And he literally said, I made a mistake. I was wrong. He said, we've won some legislative battles, but we've lost the culture. And I think a lot of people came to see that, and they began to work on a cultural level, on education. And as a result, as you know, uh, the millennials today are the most pro-life generation of all. They're much more, uh, much more pro-life than their baby boomer parents. Yes. Uh, and I, that has given me a great deal of hope that, if we, yes, we continue to work on it in terms of politics, and some people are called to that, and that's very important. But most of us, Ordinary people are called to work on the level of just persuasion and education, and that really ultimately is what changes a culture even more. Uh, and politics tends to follow people's convictions. So, again, the, identifying the underlying worldview, which is a negative view of the body, 
negative view of what it means to be human. It's because people have a low view of the body that they think just being human does not give you human rights in terms of abortion, euthanasia, assisted suicide, infanticide, and so on. And it's because they don't think there's any value in just being biologically male or female that they say my biological sex has no has nothing to say to my sexual um, orientation or my gender identity. In both cases, it's a low view of the body and biology. And so that opens the door for a very positive case, a very positive message saying, we do want to show you how you can have a high value, how you can have dignity to your body, to your biological, to, to biological sex. It's a, it's a positive message of integration, of over, overcoming that self-estrangement that the, the, the Princeton University professor talked about with transgenderism. She, says, she called it self-estrangement and self-alienation. Well, my goodness, that opens the door for us to come in with a message of self-integration, of healing, right. healing the self-alienation. So I think that we have an opportunity now to craft a very positive and appealing and attractive message. Well, that's a good place to end. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.